I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, Ian S. Lustig, author of Paradigm Lost from Two State Solution to One State Reality and Emeritus Professor at the University of Pennsylvania, joins us to discuss his recent op-ed in Foreign Policy entitled... Vengeance is not a policy. We'll be discussing the events of October 7th and what has transpired since then with the bombing of Gaza. Professor Lustig worries that a response similar to that of what we experienced in the aftermath of 9-11 and the frenzy of the war on terror could lead to major and catastrophic consequences. We'll be discussing all that and much more on this edition of the show. Our continued coverage of Israel, Palestine, Gaza, Hamas, and all the rest continues with INS Lustig. Welcome back to Parallax Views. A guest that I'm very happy was able to join me on such short notice uh, Ian S. Lustig, professor at the University of Pennsylvania and author of Paradigm Lost from Two-State Solution to One-State Reality. Uh, he recently wrote a piece in Foreign Policy entitled, Vengeance is Not a Policy. Emotionally Driven Reactions from Washington Won't Prevent Future Violence. Dismantling the Gaza Prison Could. How are you doing? Doing okay. I'm doing okay. G- given everything that's happening yeah, right now, of no course. No one is but- doing well these days. So if you could, Ian, uh, maybe you could give uh, just your basic assessment of what has transpired from uh, October 7th to today 
and uh, where you think maybe there's analysis that needs to be made that isn't necessarily getting out there? Well, let's take a look at the way you posed the question, which I believe is crucial. You asked me to tell me what I thought of events since October 7th. And as I point out in my article that you referred to, when someone tells a story, they know that most of the work of the story is accomplished when you decide where to start the story. So if you start the story on the morning of, of October 7th, Simcha Torah, Shabbat, there's a festival going on, a peaceful day uh, in the communities along the Gaza seam, and all of a sudden these barbaric, extraordinarily effective uh, terrorists leap out of the the early morning heavily armed and start slaughtering men, women, and children in brutal, unspeakable ways. Then this is a story about a barbarian attack. It's a 9-11 story. We were at peace and the barbarians struck us. Now we're in shock but we will join together as representatives of human values and we will defeat and punish the evildoers, okay? If you start the story on October 7th, that is the story. And I believe it, that's the story. But it's not the story if you started in 1948 or even 19, uh, 2007. If you started in 1948, the story has a different narrative arc and defeat of Hamas, uh, and even the does not provide a satisfying narrative conclusion, because what happened in '48 is that the grandparents of the people who so brutally uh, entered these settlements, the, their grandparents were expelled from that whole area around Gaza and pushed into Gaza by Israeli forces or Jewish forces, since many of it, many of these actions took place before Israel was established and before the Egyptian uh, invasion, uh, in order to make a country that was as Arab-less as possible. And, is, and so if you start then, and then you talk about the prison into which millions of Gazans have been confined without trial and with life sentences for a decade and a half at least, but actually more, the story is different. It's not, it's a, it's a story of, it's still a brutal story and it still includes unspeakable war crimes, but the, but it's about what happens when prisoners, when a prisoner organization revolts there's a lot of brutality on both sides, uh, and the prison can get destroyed. There's a lot to unpack there. I guess the first thing I, I want to address, because I, I brought this up as well, that there's a history that goes uh, beyond October 7th. You know, there, there's a whole past that we have to address. And it seems like the response I will get from some quarters is, oh, you're just trying to contextualize brutality. You're contextualizing the brutality of the Hamas attack. And I, I just, I don't understand how we can analyze these events without knowing what led up to them. Uh, so what do you say to the people that have this intense or emotional, re emotional reaction that are saying, oh, any talk of what happened before October 7th is a contextualization of brutality? Okay, so 
to make my point a little more abstract and in answer your question, context is something that's established in space and, and in time. So when you tell the story, starting on the morning of, Oct of October 7th, you are establishing a context. The question is not who's contextualizing and who's not contextualizing. It's what the contextualization should be. And I don't challenge the veracity of the story in one context. It's just not the only way in to see it. And if you see it that way, you're doomed to keep repeating little teeny weeny episodes of brutality. If you see the context much wider, you have an opportunity so that episodes in the future don't have to end up in the same way. So that's what I would say. It's not a question of who's contextualizing and who's just speaking the facts. It's how you how it is contextualized because it always is and i'll give you a an example since people's minds commonly go to world war ii if we ask about the dropping of the bomb on hiroshima or nagasaki or the fire raids on dresden and hamburg which killed 70,000 80,000 civilians in each one well that's obviously an unspeakably barbaric act, except when you look at it in the context of the war. And even then, it's very difficult to justify, but you could never justify it without context. It would be as barbaric or as uninformative, let's say, to just talk about American, uh, the 8th Air Force destroying Dresden without mentioning that, oh, yes, it's in the context of a world war with the Nazis. You So for people that are new to this topic, specifically the topic of Gaza, because I'm having a lot of people ask me, well, how do I understand this better, et cetera, et cetera. So Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip is 2.3 million people live there, um, and it's often been called an open-air prison. Now, I'm seeing uh, what I would say are, are pro-Israeli voices saying, how can you call it a prison? That's the fault of Hamas. What does... Uh, uh, Israel have to do with that. So how do you respond to those voices and how would you uh, explain the situation in Gaza leading up to all of this and, and now? Well, it's kind of strange to call the circumstances of Gaza the fault of Hamas. Uh, Hamas is effectively the prisoner organization that the Israeli government, especially under Netanyahu, has explicitly and for years used to control Gaza and to control the things that Israel doesn't want to happen. Now, it's very apparent that Netanyahu made a miscalculation in thinking the degree to which he could manipulate this prisoner organization. But that's what it is. And it's very similar in some ways, in many ways, to the prisoner organizations that exist in prisons inside of Israel proper, in Megiddo, in Ashkelon prison, in, uh, in Beisan, in the prison there, Shikma. These are what happens in those prisons inside of Israel is 90% what the prisoner organization uh, oversees happening. And, these, and the wardens know it. That's how prisons get run. We don't say that those prisons are there because of the prisoner organizations. No, they're there because Israel wants to contain and isolate and seal off these populations from itself. It can do that most of the time 
in ordinary prisons, but when you have 2.3 million people with essentially life sentences and no trial and no horizon, you cannot possibly seal that off in the long run. No system can be, every system that tries to contain explosive and increasing pressures, every one of those systems will fail eventually. And that's what happened here. If you could, could you talk a little bit about uh, why you refer to Gaza as a crowded Israeli prison? Because uh, you even say that, you know, there are people that will reject that idea as outlandish. But a lot of this article is about uh, showing that that is, in fact, what it is. Well, what I say in the article is outlandish is not so much that it's a prison, which is easy to see if you've ever visited it. It's surrounded by a wall. No one can get out. Uh, some trustees are allowed to work on the outside during the day, but they have to go to back to prison at night. Uh, it, 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 there are punishment uh, of people in the prison regularly when they misbehave. And there's a prisoner organization. That's what's outlandish to people is to is is the, is the point that this prison is inside of Israel. We're not talking about a war between two states. Israel does not recognize Gaza as a separate state. When Sharon withdrew Israeli forces and settlements in 2005, he absolutely refused to negotiate with anyone, not not uh, PLO and not Hamas with no one. He did not want to uh, create a political relationship with an entity that would establish a precedent for possible Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank. As much as possible, he favored the idea of a chaotic border that would show it was impossible in his mind to uh, do a similar evacuation on the West Bank. Uh, that was his own miscalculation, but that was how the Gaza prison got established. But because Israel delivers the mail to Gaza, because it does not separate Gaza in its own maps or in its own in a discourse from the rest of the country, because it controls all electricity, all water, all fuel, essentially all fuel, because it uh, controls the coast so no one can even go fishing without Israel, allow, Israel allowing how far they can go off the coast, uh, They, it is inside the Israeli state. Now, to be a political scientist for a moment about it, what a state means, and I've gone into detail about this in my writings, what a state is is the organization that enforces property rights. It's the organization that tells you that if you pay your taxes and obey the law, your house or anything you own will remain yours. And if there is no state that says that, then basically you can't own anything because no everybody will take whatever you have. You can't plant anything because you can't sow or reap it. So a state is that which determines whether your house will stand tomorrow. The only state, the only organization between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River that can determine whether houses will stand in Gaza is obviously is Israel. No, that is that's the rough and true meaning of a state. So in addition to the fact that you would never have an interstate war where one state, the first thing it does is cut off all water, food, electricity, uh uh, and uh, to the uh, and fuel to that other state that that's not a war that's what you do to a zone inside yourself which is what Israel has done so the point of my article that people may find outlandish but which is true is that Gaza is Israel's problem and they haven't figured out what to do about it 
They don't, of course, want the Gazans. Prime Minister Rabin, at one point before he was prime minister, said, I, I wish Gaza would just sink into the sea. But it's not going to do that, he said. So we have to come up with something else. Eventually, what he did come up with was a plan that too slowly moved toward a Palestinian state. And that plan can't, did not come to fruition. I think it could have. It no longer can. So Israel's now stuck with this, with Gaza within itself. And the reality is that between the river and the sea within the state of Israel, there are more Arabs now than there are Jews. And that kind of reality makes one worry that when Israel talks about evacuating the northern half of Gaza, moving over a million people in a couple days, that it is actually thinking about if, uh, uh, expelling all these people, not allowing them back, creating a new refugee problem in order to try to solve its problem of having too many Arabs in the country. You mentioned earlier Netanyahu and Hamas, and there's a lot of uh, publications in Israel, such as Haaretz and the Times of Israel, talking about the role that uh, Netanyahu's government coalition has had over the years, or Netanyahu himself has had over the years, in abetting Hamas. Could you speak to that issue for people that are unfamiliar with it? Yes. So we have to go back, actually, to the 1970s in order to put the right context uh, into that question, so as not to overblame Netanyahu, because he did not start this, uh, this practice of cooperating with Hamas to try to get things done that Israel didn't want to do directly. In the, seven, early, in the 70s, when the PLO, and especially the uh, factions of the PLO that were more radical, such as the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, were very popular in Gaza and were rising up in revolt, and uh, Sharon was the commander of the Southern Front, and uh, he uh, bulldozed his way through refugee camps, killed hundreds of Palestinians to try to calm that place down. But one other thing that the government did was to say, look, there is a, an organization called the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is a very well-known Sunni Muslim organization. It's the organization that won the elections in Egypt before Mohammed Morsi was overthrown by the current Egyptian dictator. There is a Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine, and particularly in Gaza. We should allow it to function and help it function so that it would be a rival in, uh, against the, the PLO. Because after all, it's a religious organization, not a political organization. We'll, we, we won't be threatened by it. So there was a tilt, an active tilt by the Israeli government, even back then, toward the religious, toward the Muslim brothers. Now, by the time we get to the first intifada in 1987, uh, which was launched by a Palestinian nationalist mainly, but joined in by the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood at that time in 1988 decided we are going to lose our, our rivalry with the nationalists unless we create an anti-occupation force, an anti-occupation organization. It's that point that, Muslim, that the Muslim Brothers that had been facilitated by the Israeli government, created Hamas. Hamas did not exist before then. It's a front organization that has outgrown its frontness for the Muslim brothers. Then we come to the point where there was an option to negotiate with Hamas and to let Hamas and the PLO reunite to resume an Oslo process, you would have had to allow 
prisoners in Israeli jails, both Muslim and nationalists, agreed to this kind of negotiation in which the Muslim side, the Hamas side, would say, we can accept a two-state solution as long as we don't have to bless Zionism. We will continue a political struggle, but we'll end the armed struggle. That option was open. It was refused by several Israeli governments. And instead, we start getting, because of a change in the political uh, tenor of Israel entirely, increasingly right-wing governments after the Second Intifada, uh, which Netanyahu represents better than anyone else. And this is these are governments that want as much as possible to eliminate the Palestinian problem, if not eliminate Palestinians, and to, to make sure that there is no ne- negotiating process that could lead to any change in the status of the West Bank other than Israeli control. Gaza has been a particularly thorn in that side because the right wing, the ideological right wing in Israel will not say that Israel should not go back to Gaza. They consider Gaza to be part of the land of Israel that should be ruled by Jews. But it's so overpopulated and so impoverished impoverished and so hostile that it's politically very difficult for people to publicly say, even on the right, that they want to return to Gaza. That leaves Gaza in a limbo, which from the Netanyahu point of view, is fine as long as it can be sealed off from harming Israel. And he thought he could by paying off Hamas with Qatari dollars and letting them have the kinds of things that trustees in prisons get. A few small privileges and slightly improved living conditions and does, does that like include that. things like the the? I think there was a work visa program that they exactly. had with Gaza. That's exactly. Okay. You know, one of the typical things you find in a prison is people. One of the privileges is being allowed to work, is being allowed even to work outside the prison and make money for yourself, even if the wages are low. That is a classic prisoner uh, reward for good behavior and for general good behavior within the facility. That is what. The 17th, now what were before October 17th, 17,000 worker permits, carefully screened uh, uh, males allowed to work outside of Gaza just during the day and then return at night. So this is perfectly consistent with what I'm saying. And of course, there will be no such uh, from many years now and no such opportunities. If you could, uh, you said you've been to Gaza what was your experience there? And and what are the main points when we discuss Gaza as a an open-air prison? What are the main points you would point towards uh, to elucidate that fact? I've, I, I haven't been to Gaza recently. I was there the last time in the 1990s, but I'd also been there in the 1960s and 1980s. So um, originally it wasn't that different from the, the West Bank. Uh, except it was near the ocean. The West Bankers have no experience of the ocean anymore. But that was that. But other than that, uh, it wasn't that different. Even though I knew that the population was poorer, that there were a much much higher proportion of refugees. The refugees that were forced into Gaza in uh, 1948 and 49 and 1950 outnumbered three to one the local population. And now, of course. There are, instead of a couple hundred thousand people living in Gaza, there are 2.3 million people living in Gaza, half of whom are children. Children. So when you look at 6,000 bombs having been dropped on Gaza already, they're being dropped 
on where one million children are living. so that's the, it is also the rate of employment, the rate of mental uh, trauma and of, of mental illness is higher in Gaza among children and probably adults than almost anywhere in the world. And there's no doubt in my mind that the brutality uh, that we saw is partially linked to that. If Also, I, of course, I always have to wonder when soldiers are sent on missions where there's a very high proportion. A possibility that they're going to die, soldiers, militants, fighters, terrorists, whatever you call them, that they are put on drugs. And uh, that's another issue that, that is standard in modern warfare. One of the horrible things that, that exposes uh, civilians to even more danger than otherwise. I don't, I, I'm not quite sure how to answer you other than that, except to say that there's a pervasive hopelessness in Gaza that is associated with the fact that the place is only as big as the city of Philadelphia, but has no access, no port, no airport, no way out. It is entirely surrounded by Israeli forces, unless from time to time there's a slight controlled uh, entry point to Egypt, which is not true anymore. And that hopelessness uh, com- uh, it produces uh the sense of living in a cage, uh, which is a very accurate sense. Uh, and if you cage, if you treat people as if they're animals who require to be in a cage in order to make you feel safe, it wouldn't be surprising. And in the long run, some of them are going to start behaving like animals. It's also, I, I don't know if you can uh, clarify this, but I, I believe Gaza is also one of the most heavily surveilled areas in the world. Yes, and that's kind of strange to think of now, isn't it? Uh, There's the constant buzzing of drones overhead in Gaza. Uh, And uh, those of you who watch Fauda have the idea of just how pervasive and and granular uh, are Israeli surveillance techniques. But, But the fact is that if you live under surveillance for long enough, you come to understand how the system works. And if you understand how that system works and how reliant it becomes on remote sensing, you can play it. You can evade it. What I am stunned by is the uh, apparent over-reliance by the Israeli intelligence community on remote sensing rather than human intelligence. It's not well known, but tens of thousands of Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza usually forcibly recruited as informers and collaborators, have been brought into Israel and allowed to live permanently inside the official lines of the of the country because their life because their missions had ended. They had been exposed as collaborators and they could no longer live in the West Bank or Gaza. Many of those collaborators live in Sterot, in the community near Gaza. So what I'm wondering is whether Israel either lost its a its cadre of informants within Gaza, or that a large proportion of those collaborators were playing a double game and had been recruited and counterespionage techniques uh, for counterespionage purposes by Hamas and to send Israel this uh, incorrect information. I just don't know, but it is a and, and no one yet 
has come up with an explanation of just how staggering and why this staggering intelligence failure occurred. What of the issue of, um, you know, taking a chunk of the security forces in Israel and uh, focusing all the attention on the West Bank? Yeah. Uh, how important is that to understanding that the West Bank settlement project? Right. So in general, it's very important. The whole, in the sense that the entire focus of this government has been on the West Bank. Uh, when we, Now we're talking about pogroms against Jews in the Gaza Seam area, but the last but last month we were talking about settler Jewish settler pogroms against Arab villages in the West Bank, specifically Huara. Uh, so that displacement of attention is very important to understanding what happened in Gaza. Uh, also, but also the need to, to treat Gaza as if it didn't exist, like there was no imminent problem from the Palestinians. Israel could go on to absorb the West Bank, normalize relations with the Arab states, and nothing, and nothing that happened, the world didn't care about Gaza, and you don't have to care about it either. So now in order to do that, you needed Qatari money, and you needed to deal with the prisoner organizations to keep things quiet. That's why Netanyahu has been gradually increasing the quote-unquote privileges of the prisoners in Gaza over the last couple of years. That all failed. So that's all correct. But what's not correct are some of the reports that that specifically in the last few weeks, battalions had to be shifted to protect settlers in uh, who were conducting provocative meetings uh, in Palestinian villages. And had they not, they would have been on patrol along the Gaza border. What is true is that several battalions were uh, deployed to the West Bank to protect settlers who were holding rallies in a rally inside Huara as a provocation on Simchas Torah. That is true. But that battalion was taken from a training center. It wasn't taken from Gaza. On the other hand, it's very interesting that those forces were all shifted to the south as soon as this attack became known for what it was. I think there's one more point to be made about the cost to the military of this misconception that there was no threat from Gaza and that the Palestinians were, in general, not a serious threat to Israel. They could be controlled. They could be rendered subservient. They should be subjugated and ignored. And that is that the Israeli army be, has become so reliant, not only on Hamas and the rest, West Bank, but on the Palestinian Authority security forces in in uh, in the West. I mean, not only Hamas in Gaza, but on the Palestinian Authority security forces in the West Bank, that apart from the highly trained units that are used to raid Palestinian refugee camps and cities, the Israeli army doesn't have much experience lately and maybe not enough training in fighting real wars. And there is a concern that what we saw along the Gaza border by the first uh, elements who were there shows weaknesses in the military that is Israel can't afford to display. It might also signal a reluctance to get involved in a war with Hezbollah that would be on the ground. As long as Israel can conduct operations in the air, it doesn't worry as much. But both the invasion in Gaza and any ground fighting in Lebanon or with Hezbollah might now challenge the uh, capacity of the Israeli military to perform the way everyone would expect them to perform. I just had a few more questions here, if you have the time. Uh, 
in your article, you very, very briefly in passing uh, mention the assassination of Israeli Prime Minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin decades ago. Uh, why is it important to understand something like that, which happened, you know, for a lot of people, it's it's a memory now, you know, it's uh, it, it's something that happened a few decades ago. Why is it important to understand something like the assassination in the context of what's now happening? Be- uh, f- for this reason, and I, I, it's why I mentioned it, and let's, let's say again, this article that we keep referring to appeared in, in an uh, outlet called foreignpolicy.com. It's called uh, vengeance is not a policy for people who are interested in it. History does not go along one path. It it can be going along towards something that seems almost inevitable, and then there can be a break in the path. And which way you go on that juncture determines what parts of the state space of the future are available to you and what parts will no longer be possible. I think the last time that a two-state solution in which the Palestinian rights effectively get satisfied, at least in a minimally acceptable way, by a state living alongside and in peace with Israel in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, the last time that was possible was the Oslo process in the 1990s. Neither the Israeli government nor the PLO was entirely, or certainly Hamas, entirely ready to agree on the details. But it took so long in the 1990s to make progress toward talking about that, that extremists on both sides, Hamas on one side and the settler uh, ultranationalist messianic zealots on the Israeli side, were able to do things to destroy the process, to destroy a process that had a lot of hope. And one of the key uh, acts in that destructive campaign by extremists on each side was the assassination by a Jewish religious nationalist extremist of Yitzhak Rabin, who had a reputation for toughness, but also for pragmatism. And once he was gone, the uh, it became even less likely and almost impossible to imagine that there was going to be uh, a, a two-state solution. My book that you mentioned, Paradigm Lost, is about the world that we've lived in since the disappearance of the two-state solution, and which Israel is, as I've said, effectively one state. It's not a democratic state because most of the people living in it, uh, or half of them, don't have rights to participate in politics, almost half of them. Uh, but that that's the reality. And now we're in a process that takes can take a very long time of democratizing this state, and when we realized that the United States did not become a multicultural democracy without 600,000 Americans dying in a civil war, we can appreciate just how difficult it is to change a country that's based on stigmatization and subjugation of a huge proportion of its population to a country in which everyone has access to politics equally. Real quick, I want to clarify for people um, with regards to the assassination of Rabin, uh, I believe it was uh, Yigal Amir was yes. the, the figure that yeah. killed him. And when we yeah. call, say he's a religious right-wing extremist, we mean an Israeli. He wasn't Palestinian. Yes, so I just was... want people to understand that. Um, yes. With regards to uh, your book about the one-state reality, uh, I know people will say, well, that would mean uh, Israel would cease to be a Jewish state. Um, how do you respond to people when they bring that up? Uh 
usually it, dep it depends how they define Jewish state. If they mean by Jews, by Jewish state, a state that uh, has a majority or has more Jews in it than anyone else, that might still remain, although right now there are slightly more Arabs than Jews. Uh, if they mean by that a state that privileges Jews over Arabs or over non-Jews, uh, and that that is part of the official mission of the state to discriminate in favor of Jews over non-Jews, they are right. There would not be, that state would not, that regime would change. The state itself, its boundaries, even its name, its money could all stay the same, but the regime that requires discrimination would not be there. But the other part of that regime is that that's already gone. Now, you, is it used to be that it was a regime that discriminated in favor of Jews, but appeared to the world as if it did not. It fr could front as a liberal democracy. Over the years, because of the growth of the Arab population and their ability to mobilize, it's been more and more and more apparent that Israel is not a liberal democracy. And we see that by what the government now in Israel has been trying to do to those traces of liberalism that still exist to, to eliminate them. So you're, you no longer have that kind of a Jewish state that is, quote unquote, both Jewish and democratic. It's obviously Jewish in the sense that it privileges Jews is no longer democratic. So if you're worried about losing that Jewish state, it's already gone. Before we wrap up, what do you think the biggest misconceptions and misunderstandings people have about what is unfolding right now? Uh, what what would you caution against people uh, saying right now or believing that isn't true? Well, one of the that the Palestinians never missed an opportunity uh, to take an opportunity. Uh, which is just as untrue as the idea that the Israelis have constantly offered opportunities uh, only to have them rejected by the Palestinians. These are two completely inaccurate uh, understandings of the past. They're very convenient for some people. They're very frustrating for Palestinians, but they're completely untrue. And uh, and I would even go one step further and answer your question. That was an example of it. But I think the biggest problem that people have is ignorance. They think that they know in simple formulae what happened in this context, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. But in fact, the, the real story is very much more complicated. And there are no black and whites here. They're very complicated. I mean, there are some black and whites, excuse me, but they're they're distributed in a complicated way. And unless you know, really know something of the history and read perhaps things that you don't at first agree with, you are going to be shouting slogans and not thinking about what's actually going on in people's minds and on the ground. I was just going to add to that. I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, Palestinians in Gaza are caught between, on one hand, Hamas, and on the other hand, Israel. The rock in a hard place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this, uh, this occurs in different ways. For example, during the Intifada from 1987 to 1993, a real local leadership grew up 
that was not part of the external PLO, the PLO that was based in Tunis, and it was not part of Hamas. It was secular. It was very close to the people. By the end of the Intifada, Israel had imprisoned almost the entire leadership of that. These were the authentic, effective leaders of the of the Palestinians, and they were ready for a two-state solution, but insisted on all of the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem being the Palestinian state. What Israel did under even Rabin and Perez would say, we would rather have Arafat back here as a kind of tin horn dictator who who does the dirty work, as Rabin said, to take to control the Palestinians instead of us having to do it. And we will give him something that he can call a state if he wants. Uh, but we will not we don't want to deal with these authentic Palestinian nationalists. So they stayed in jail or they stayed outside of politics and they are now older and they're being replaced by a much more radical younger generation. So that group was caught between Hamas and uh, and the external PLO that had its own political interests in maintaining control of Palestine and Israel, which did not want it either because it was moderate enough to mobilize the entire Palestinian population and effectively negotiate with Israel for a, a solution which would have required too much, uh, too, too many concessions for Israeli government to think it would win the next election in Israel. So in that sense, Palestinians are always getting caught in the way that you describe. Two more things. Uh, I was wondering if you could comment on just the well, I'll put it this way. This has been called, October 7th has been called Israel's 9-11. And I think that's an interesting comparison to draw because I do feel like we're in this environment that feels very much like the aftermath of 9-11. And it feels like there's going to be a chilling effect on really talking about these things in a thoughtful way. Um, you know, emotions are very high right now. Are you worried about uh, just the public discourse around these issues right now uh, in the aftermath of all this. Yes, absolutely. I, I wrote a book also about the aftermath of 9-11 called Trapped in the War on Terror, which try, which explains how the catastrophe of, of 9-11, because it was used politically by those in the administration who wanted a uh, a war against Iraq and against uh, Libya and against Iran and against North Korea, the neoconservatives, we ended up not just with a catastrophe, we ended up with a super duper catastrophe by invading Iraq. And that's a danger of acting from your emotion or letting your You, you blood said invading be- Iraq, right? Excuse I me? thought you said Iran for a second. but I said Iraq. We invaded okay. Iraq in 2000 and. Uh, and and uh, or three, in direct uh, as a direct result of what was falsely done, what was done done to make uh, inaccurate and politically calculated distortions of what happened on nine eleven. Al Qaeda was not in Iraq to make it clear. Uh, we uh, but what and what we saw was the in, absolutely incompetent. President Bush's popularity soar to 90% practically because he was able to stand on a, on the ashes of 9-11 and use a bullhorn to threaten vengeance. Now, I am worried in general about the way emotionally fraught, devastatingly brutal acts like what we saw uh, last Saturday 
can lead to explosions of irrationality that could lead not just to to, uh, thousands or tens of thousands, but even hundreds of thousands of casualties if we have a war in Lebanon. So I want to prevent that. And one of uh, I want to try to bring people even remember that analogy that you're talking about. How much irrationally irrationality, a little irrationality, can produce. But one hopeful thing is that in Israel, when you've had failure in war, like you had in the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and I was in Israel during that war, or in 2006 in the Second War in Lebanon. Even 2000, in the first Lebanon war, governments in power in Israel have paid the price for failure. Begin died of a broken heart after the uh, disastrous decisions he made having to do with the first Lebanon war. Echod Olmert's career and uh, the career of other politicians was ended by the uh, failures of the uh, second Lebanon war. Golda Meir, Moshe Dan, even the uh, the chief of staff of the Israeli army in 1973, their careers, even the domination of the Labor Party within a few years is done for by the failure of of the 1973. Right now, I consider Netanyahu a dead politician walking. And although in the heat of the moment, Israelis will come together and rally around the flag, the heads will roll in Israel, unlike what happened in the United States after 9-11. I wanted to say, too, and I think this goes without saying because I can feel it when you speak. Uh, You're not trying to take away anything from people having the intense emotional reaction to what happened on the 7th. That's not your point at all. You're not really. I I, I share that reaction. I have friends who live in that area. I know that area. Uh, I'm I'm Jewish. It's impossible not to have. I'm human. It's impossible not to respond to those stories. I can hardly imagine maintaining my sanity if I were a member of a family whose loved ones had been taken hostage and you didn't know what was happening to them. And then these bombs start falling. I can't imagine it. Closing out here, where do you see, I mean, beyond the question of the the bigger solution to Israel-Palestine, where do you see this edit with the bombing of Gaza now? Is there a way... For, for a ceasefire to be made, or what, what what can be done to end this particular aspect of the conflict? Well, listen, we're going to have to bring this to a close, uh, but as someone who studied every single war, I can tell you that a very large proportion of what will determine when it ends is when the international community, and especially the United States, tells Israel it has to end. That not only because the international community in the United States has control, but because politicians in Israel need an excuse to stop. They need to be able to tell their people, we couldn't finish the job as completely as we might have wanted because we can't defy the entire world. We can't defy the United States. So when the United States sends the signal it's sending now, still sending, which, yes, there are international laws, but everything Israel is doing is self-defense. That is a dangerous sign. It's a danger to Israel because it takes away the ability of the government to say, we can stop here. And now, if they don't stop at a certain point, the likelihood that Hezbollah will attack Israel goes up very dramatically. And Hezbollah 
has 10 times the missile capacity, the rocket capacity that Hamas had, both in numbers and sophistication. So that the size of the stru- of the of the catastrophe that can occur should that attack happen uh, is truly enormous. So I want to thank you again, INS Lustig, for coming on Parallax Use. How can my listeners keep up with your work? And if they have any questions, are they able to uh, contact you or anything like that? I know there's going to be people that will have questions okay, so, for you. So here's what I suggest. First of all, there's a website www.paradigmlostbook.com www.paradigmlostbook.com one word and there I have all my interviews and articles as they continue to come out they are posted there plus many other articles that I think are illuminating of the one state reality and information about the book another way is to send me your name and email address and I will put you on my distribution list. So as articles I write come out, as interviews I do come out, you will be informed of their availability. My email address, ilustic at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Ian Lustick, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you, JG. See you again soon. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found enlightening, educational, and informative my conversation with INS Lustick. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike to Parallax Jerry with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.